And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down with Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan this week to talk about her life, her story, her journey, uh, but also and particularly about this coronavirus siege that has hit her state very hard. We talked before the president's total authority press conference and his press conference later in the week in which he ceded authority back to the states to decide when they were going to open up again. And I also spoke with her before protests erupted in the state capitol in connection with some very tough guidelines she's laid down to try and enforce her stay-at-home order. Here's that conversation. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, it's so good to be with you. Are you in your office or in your home? I'm in my office at the state capitol. I'm going to do a um, press conference shortly, and so uh, I've got the, a small team here to help me do this, but trying to observe everything we're, we're encouraging everyone else to do. Yeah, Fifteen months ago when you raised your hand and took that oath, you could not have imagined being in the position that you're in right now. Tell me what it's like from your perspective to deal with this which has just exploded on us. You know, I think it's been um, incredibly challenging, obviously. I, I, I'm sure every governor across the country would say that. Um, we never would have anticipated being in this situation and confronting the kind of um, enormity of the, of the virus that we are with um, as few tools as our country has to uh, combat it. Were you surprised by the lack of tools? I was. I think that um, early on, one of our all-governors conference calls with the White House, when um, it became clear that, you know, the message was, you need to start finding this PPE on your own. We're not going to be able to to meet your needs. That's, I think, when it really dawned on me, we've got to have a whole operation that is focused solely on procuring masks. And and that was an aspect that was surprising. Um, We didn't we didn't stay surprised for long. We just went into action. Uh, I think as one of the first people to, you know, share some of our frustrations in that process because we end up bidding against one another. And now every governor's acknowledged that. But I, I think that it's really, a, um, it, that was a big surprise and, and it was very disheartening. You were one of the first to acknowledge it and it won you a nickname from the president, which usually you have to move along in your career before you get to that point where the president deems you worthy of uh, of a pejorative nickname, but he uh, he laid one on you. And then he told the vice president, I wouldn't talk to that woman in, in Michigan. How did you react to that? And have there actually been any ramifications in terms of your ability to get what you need from the federal government because the president was sore at you? Well, I'll tell you how I reacted. I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep for a couple of days because I was worried that this, you know, kind of uh, petty uh, back and forth might preclude me from getting what I need for the people of, of this state. And, you know, the last thing I want is um, for anything to stand in the way of our ability to give our nurses and doctors the, the kind of support that they need. Um, you know, I wasn't engaging, and I made the same observation governors across the country had made, but for whatever reason, uh, it was it was elevated, and I just, I don't have time for any of that. All I need is, you know, masks. I, you know, I sound like a broken record, and but this is, at the end of the day, 
we should be able to say the virus is the enemy. It's not the governors. It's not the federal government. It's not the individual employees and in these huge spaces where we've got state employees and federal employees. We're all got to be on the same team on this one. This is a virus that is ravaging our country and the under uh, preparedness, I think, is something that is is really dangerous. And Dr. Fauci said it. I've said it a number of times. It, it's going to, you know, cost lives the fact that we weren't prepared as we should have been, and and that's a, a frustration. But so far, you know, we've had a a really a decent working relationship with the feds. I talked to the um, vice president pretty frequently, and you know, we're not getting what we need. We're getting a fraction of what we need. And, and I don't think that it's because we're Michigan. I think it's because the federal government doesn't have the kind of tools that, you know, that we all need. Will it impair you? Is it impairing you? We should point out that Michigan, I think I saw the latest stats today, uh, 24,658 or 38 cases, uh, 1,487 deaths. Are you equipped to deal with this now? Do you have what you need right now? You say you're not getting what you need from the federal government. Have you been able to fill in adequately so that you feel like you can provide the, the treatment, the coverage, the medical care that people need? So Michigan, like Illinois and like Ohio and, uh, you know, a number of other states, we were aggressive on the front end. We I signed a stay home order early on. I've just re-upped it for another three weeks. And, you know, it's it's hard to do. We're asking people to make sacrifice. But with a virus for which there's no cure and no vaccine, for which we have too little PPE and it's highly contagious and deadly, the best tool we have is to slow the spread by not being around one another. And it's, it's really that simple. I've seen... Uh, doctors opine that if we all could just freeze for 14 days, this virus would sputter to an end. So taking these aggressive actions has helped us avoid, you know, a, a really steep peak that we were anticipating. It's started to mellow, mellow a little bit. Now I say a little bit because I'm very um, reticent to say it's time to just start back up the economy. We know we can't just flip a switch and go back to pre-COVID-19 days. We're going to have to be really smart and thoughtful about what that looks like when it's safe to do it. But the fact of the matter is these aggressive strategies that a number of states have taken are going to uh, be what saved our health care systems and save lives. You raised an interesting point, and Dr. Fauci was talking about this yesterday. Re-engaging the economy is a very tricky thing because since there is no vaccine, and we know so little about this virus, we could be right back in the soup. Korea, South Korea is now going through those concerns right now, even though they have been very aggressive on this. You, by the way, took some heat for extending your stay-at-home order and toughening it last week. But how do we come out of it? And what, what do you as a governor, because ultimately you're going to make the decision, not the president, what do you as a governor need to see and what tools do you need in order to begin sending people back to work? Yeah, so we got to be really smart. I've been talking a lot with my colleagues across the country on both sides of the aisle, frankly. Uh, there are a lot of governors who are trying to familiarize ourselves with the best science and then share what we're learning with one another so that we are strategic, we are being smart, we avoid a second wave that would be devastating to our economy. When people are mad that we have to stay home for another three weeks, 
the worst thing we could do is to have a second spike where we have to get right back into the same posture a month down or two months or in the fall. And so as we look to what does it look like to re-engage? I mean, it's got to be phases and it's got to be slow and it's got to be really um, smart, well-informed by the best medical practices. We have to have robust testing. And that is one of the fundamentals, testing, tracing, and treatment. If we can test everyone who needs to get tested, we will have a real handle on who's got COVID-19. If we know who has it, we can isolate them and start to you know, re-engage sectors of our economies. And um, the, the treatment, you know, when we get to a vaccine, that's not gonna be for a while. And so ramping up this testing and really having robust tracing is essential to us getting back into a place. Do you have the tests that you need? Uh, and not just tests for COVID-19, but you'll probably also need to do uh, this serological testing, blood testing to see who has developed an immunity because a lot of people are walking around with COVID-19 and they may not show symptoms. Right. That's right. Well, uh, we do not have all the tests that we need. One of the things that was announced today is that Beaumont Hospital System here in Michigan um, is going to be doing the biggest serological testing in the nation. Uh, They're working with the FDA and I'm excited about that. They've got 43,000 people who work in and around the system that they will start testing. And I think if we can ramp that up so we know who has the antibodies and who can, we think, safely interact back in the economy. I say we think, though, because, you know, our chief medical executive would tell me this is a novel virus. We are learning every single day. We don't know how long the antibodies would protect you. We don't know if it is going to uh, mutate and become something different, and and maybe those antibodies aren't as... um, as helpful. So, but having that test is one piece of, of a broader testing scheme that we've got to be able to do. The actual uh, COVID-19 testing to see if you are currently ill with it is really important. We've never had enough of it. We're doubling our testing in Michigan this week. It still means that we're way under where we should be. We need swabs and the biggest producer of swabs is in Italy. Um, we need more N95 masks. M- most of those are coming out of China. We're ramping up on those fronts here in the United States, but um, it's you know it takes time to get to a place where we're actually meeting our own needs here in this country. And so I am hopeful that on the other side of this, we as a nation have a serious conversation about manufacturing these fundamentals um, because we've got to we've got to do the manufacturing here if, to make sure that we never are confronting something like this again. Have you uh, personally, I mean, this is, the stories are so tragic, people healthy one day, gone the next. And we should point out not just people who are in fragile health, but people who were in good health. We lost one of the uh, Navy sailors on the USS Roosevelt over the weekend who was in good health and fell victim to this. Have you in your own life encountered people who have gotten the virus and have you lost anyone that you know? Yeah, so, you know, I think that's a really important point that I try to make. I try to remember to make it all the time because we just don't know how our bodies are going to react to COVID-19. Healthy people, it's fatal for in a matter of days. Others might just feel like they've got a little bit of a fever. We just don't know, and we can be carrying it right now and exposing people whose bodies could have that the worst reaction to it. We lost a state representative here in Michigan about a week and a half ago. He was 44 years old. Um, he, you know, is someone that I knew and someone that I liked a great deal and worked with quite a bit, and it's um, it was a blow. And despite that, the legislature decided to come in and have another meeting, which 
defied all of the, you know, recommendations from the medical community to not congregate. But um, I think that that's, you know, every one of us is going to get touched by COVID-19 one way or another. I know a lot of friends who've lost a lot of people. um, And Detroit is an epicenter. It is, um, you know, what we're seeing is there's a a racial dynamic to COVID-19 as well. And I raised that. I was on the phone today with my fellow governors across the country and um, the vice president and a number of people from the White House. And I raised that for the second time because I do think that it's important. We're sharing data. We have a strategy and we are focusing on a lot of the disparate health outcomes that have historically been there, but that are really being magnified in in this moment. Yeah, you, you've said, and I think very well, that this is holding up a mirror to the United States of America and the failings of our social safety net and, and, the, and the, the injustices within our economy. Poverty, I think you said, was is a pre-existing condition. You look at these numbers and they're startling. I mean, uh, Detroit has 7% of the population in your state, 25% of the deaths from COVID-19. Uh, Wayne County, similarly, just 17% surrounding Detroit of the population, almost half of the deaths. And 40% of the people who have died in Michigan, African-American, I think the population, African-American population is about 14% or so in your state. I guess my question to you is, what have you learned as a governor? Are there things that you're learning when that mirror is held up against the state of Michigan? Are there lessons you're learning that will change your policy prescriptions moving forward here? Well, you know, I, um, during my State of the State, which was just in January, I spent quite a bit of time talking about the um, health disparities for women and babies of color. You know, it's three times more dangerous in the United States of America to have a baby if you're a black woman. It's just, and, and it's deadly. I mean, three times more, uh, you know, instance of death. That's a reality that we have to confront. That's a reality that we have to focus on, whether it's implicit bias or it is access to medical care. Um, These are all important pieces of it. I think that uh, this has shown we've got a lot of work to do as a nation, certainly individual states. I'm glad that my colleague in Illinois and my colleague in Louisiana are sharing the racial data of um, their testing, but we as a nation need to do that. Um, We've got a lot of work to do. When there's not real equitable access to health care, when there's not real equitable access to employment or educational opportunities, um, we see that you know the the pain caused from something like this is felt much worse um, by communities of color. This is not a new problem, as you point out. This is a historic problem, but it has really come back in stark relief here. Do you think it will make it easier for you and others to take more dramatic steps in terms of employment? Because, you know, one of the paradoxes here is we see the the need is even greater in poor communities, communities of color, and yet they're also the ones who are going to take the biggest economic hit from this uh, jobs lost, uh, opportunity lost. 
these are, I mean, I know these are next order questions for you as you try and get through this, but they're really profound questions. Well, they are. And I think that, you know, one of the um, exacerbating factors, frankly, has been the fact that there's been so much inconsistent messaging um, at the at the federal level since the since the beginning, and so you know I've come to understand that there were a lot of mixed messages being sent even amongst the African American community that you know there was immunity um, when when that just was never accurate, um, and it's just perpetuated a lot so much misinformation, and then one day. Um, there'll be a statement from the White House, and the next day it'll be different. It was we shouldn't don't need to take this serious, and and now it's it's on the governors to fix this. You know, it's all of these different messages has created a lot of um, distrust with anyone in a position of power when when we are trying to make decisions and communicate with the public. Uh, people don't know what to believe, and I think that that's created an even more dangerous situation than than it otherwise would have. You know, every single day when I sit at home with my family, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm lucky to be able to do that. And that one of the reasons there's such a high incidence among African Americans and the poor is that these are folks who have to go to work. They live from paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford not to work. Many of them work in what we would call essential services. But it really does, it just magnifies the horror of this, that people are going out knowing now that they're risking their lives, and but doing it because they have to in order to support their families. The social safety net needs to be really examined here so that, you know, we don't face these kinds of tragic situations. Right. Well, and no question we should be looking at all of the different um, groups that have been deemed essential right now and demand that every one of them has health care, demand that every one of them has paid sick leave. If you are essential, but you can't take the time off even though you're sick, we're mandating the spread. And so I think that these are um, important policy extensions that need to need to happen as a result of this. This is a moment to say, this here's the reality. Now let's let's fix it because we know that um, there are people that put their lives on the line every day to stock the shelves at the grocery store or to drive the bus. Uh, we've seen a lot of food and commercial workers get sick with COVID-19 and uh, a lot of bus drivers or police officers. Every one of them is uh, doing important work that the rest of us rely on. They should at the very least have, have the benefit of health care and paid sick leave. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You're relatively new to people outside of Michigan, and people are are interested in you, particularly now your name is surfacing on the national scene. We'll get to that. I'm sure you will expertly deflect any questions (laughs) about it. But but what's interesting to me about your story is you come from a prominent family. Your father was the Secretary of Commerce in Michigan under Bill Milliken, who was the longest serving governor in Michigan history, a, a moderate Republican. Your mother also an attorney, worked for uh, Frank Kelly, who was the longest serving attorney general, and he was a Democrat. But you were not as a kid that interested in politics. You wanted to be on ESPN. 
That's right. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I went to Michigan State University, which is just down the street from the state capitol. And my dad kept, you know, I was working at the football office because that was, you know, was what I thought I wanted to do. And my dad said, you should go do an internship down to the capitol and just, just get a glimpse of it. See if so few people understand government and why it's important and, and what, what it's all about. And just go check it out. It'll serve you well no matter what you end up doing. And kind of everything changed from there. What was it about that experience that captivated you and took you away from sports? The world of sports has had a big loss there, but go ahead. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I do think that, you know, it was an opportunity um, to learn everything that happens at our capitals, whether it's in Washington, D.C., or at our state capitals, impacts our lives. From the minute we wake up and turn on the tap to brush our teeth, to the roads we drive on, to the schools that we attend, I mean, it's what happens in these capitol buildings impacts us profoundly and intimately. And I don't know that, that the vast majority of people really get the opportunity to see that. And I think if they saw... It probably more people would want to run for office because I think um, you can see that it is important that we have real representation in these buildings because it profoundly impacts our lives every day. Also, because they might get pissed off at some of the things that they see. Uh, well, they might realize they could do as good a job as some of the people that are there already. <laughs> you folks divorced when you were 10, and you and your siblings, two sisters? Well, a sister and a brother, yep. And you moved to uh, Grand Rapids and lived with your mom. H- how did that experience impact on you? I-, I speak to you as a child of divorce, so I'm I'm always interested in that. Well, I'm the oldest, and, you know, I... I- I don't know if I've always been the one that tries to organize everyone and takes care, make sure everyone's okay. Um, but th- that was a role that I took on, um, you know, between my, my parents, they t- didn't communicate very well with one another. And so um, I often was the, the go between. And, you know, my dad um, worked in Detroit, Michigan, which is on the southeast side of the state. He became, uh, we should point out, the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield and was there for, I don't know, a couple of decades. Yeah. But he and and Grand Rapids is three hours to the west of Detroit, and he drove back and forth at least twice a week. And so I was really, you know, we were very fortunate that he was able to and made a priority of of my sister and brother and me. So um, even though it was a, a long distance and he did a lot of driving back in those days, uh, he was a, a very real um, present part of our lives, and and that was that was a good thing. They didn't get along real well, but they both. They both always put us kids first. You went straight through Michigan State and law school, right? I took a year off between, between um, yeah, college and law school. I worked actually at the Michigan House of Representatives. And it was an interesting time because the Michigan House of Representatives is 110 people. And that was the only time in Michigan history that it was a tie. So they switched every other month. It was Republicans were cheering all the committees and setting the agenda. And then the next month, it was the Democrats who were. And it was a, it was a great time to learn about state government and to see how parties, I think, should work together. Um, they couldn't just run right over one another because the other guy would be holding the gavel the next month. And so it was a it was a it was a really cool time to be um, working in state government. Democrats lost. I went to law school. <laughs> that was a major. Uh, that was a major. Uh, I mean, that that is probably the most one of the most challenging things about our politics in this time. You know, I I did a podcast last week with Chris Christie, and I posted it this morning, and there was just a flood of reaction from Democrats saying, "Well, I wouldn't listen to him." I'm sure when I post this 
there'll be a bunch of Republicans who'll say, well, I'm not going to listen to her. And it is a really caustic thing, you know, because as you point out, in a representative democracy, if there are parties and they can't cooperate, that is really, really tough. And now in times of all this change, if we're slowed down and bogged down because parties, because it becomes unacceptable among the base of each party to try and work together, that's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's... um this form of government that we have is messy. It can be, you know, frustrating. It can be downright ugly, but it still is the best form that there is. Um, I do think that there's a natural tendency right now to quickly vilify one another and to um, never give anyone the benefit of the doubt, which is the opposite of how I was how I was raised, and, and I find that incredibly um, depressing, frankly. But I think that we, this moment isn't going to last forever and that it's really important that we keep people engaged, that we don't vilify one another just because we don't agree on something, and that we turn the page and seek out the next opportunity. Now, in this, in this current environment, you know, I have to do that every single day. I've got a Republican-controlled legislature. Uh, if I let every slight mean we're, we weren't going to talk again, well, then we'd just stop talking probably the first week I was sworn in. But the fact of the matter is I work for 10 million people in the state. I work for Republicans and Democrats and independents and people who've never voted either. Um, and I owe it to them to do everything I can to solve these these issues that we're confronting as a state. So we're all better off. Talk about seeking opportunity. You ran for office at a relatively early age, at 29. You had a very competitive primary. It was a tumultuous time in your life. You had just you you were recently married. You were pregnant with your first child. And then you learned that your mother, Sherry, was ill. That illness turned out to be geoplastoma, brain cancer. Yep. Glioblastoma multiform. It's like the worst kind of brain tumor you can get. It's yeah. the same kind that Ted Kennedy had and, and Bo Biden. Yeah. yeah. So you were going through that while you were running for office, while you were preparing to, uh, to have your first child, while you were newlywed. And you sort of took over the role of caretaker as well. That must have been brutal. It was hard. It was really hard. You know, I've um, I've been asked a lot about it recently, and, and so I've been really thinking about my mom a lot. Um, it, you know, I think when you have got that much responsibility on your shoulders, uh, being able to take, you know, see the big picture but take small steps to get through it as a as a mechanism to um, tackle the day to day tough stuff that you got to do. But you know, I had to fight an insurance company that wrongfully denied my mom's chemotherapy. I remember coming back to her house and her head was in her hands and she was sitting at the kitchen table and, you know, she was just overwhelmed, couldn't couldn't bear to do it and had this huge bill. And so, you know, I did what I had to do. You won, uh, as I mentioned, narrowly in the primary. You never really had a narrow race for the legislature again. And then you ran for the state Senate. You were the leader in the state Senate. I, I think all the time you were there, you were dealing with Republican majorities. Is that? It's true. I was never in the majority until I won my gubernatorial race. And so you didn't get your name on many bills. You had a lot to do with shaping Medicaid expansion after Obamacare. Yeah. The thing that people nationally probably remember you for was a very personal moment that you shared with everyone because you were fighting a bill that would have, would require uh, women to get a second insurance policy if they wanted to have an abortion. And you 
in the midst of trying to explain to your colleagues, particularly your male colleagues, what that means and how mean-spirited that was, shared your own personal experience of rape when you were in college. You had never done that before. You'd never shared it before. How hard was that? Well, you know, I was the Democratic leader at the time, and my Republican colleagues wouldn't have a single hearing. They were just going to cast this vote. Um, And so they never gave women the opportunity to weigh in or doctors or um, anyone for that matter. And, you know, this bill would have meant that you'd have to pre-plan for an unplanned moment, right? Needing an abortive service of some sort, whether it's the um, loss of a desperately wanted pregnancy or it is the result of uh, being, being you know, physically attacked and raped. Um, these were very real instances that were going to be impacted that they weren't even thinking about or hearing about. And I was trying to get my colleague um, to tell the story. He and his wife were trying to have a baby, and they'd lost a, a number of desperately wanted pregnancies. And um, she required a DNC. And this bill would have meant that their insurance couldn't pay for it. And so I was trying to get him to share the story so that they could see what 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 they were impacting and, and how callous it was. And it was too hard for him because it had just happened, and it was too emotional. And I sat there, and I, it, it, I realized, how can I ask him to bear his soul when I have a story that may, might make a difference or at least put a face on some of the women that they're impacting? And um, I actually talked to my staff. I had a, a, my director of communications, a man, and my uh, right hand in the office, a woman, and uh, they were split. One said, don't say anything. You're not going to make a difference. And the other said, if you're comfortable, you know, do what you need to do. And it was a last-minute decision, and I shared it. And it didn't make, it didn't make a damn difference. Did any of your male colleagues talk to you about it after the fact? So it, it was a party-line vote. One of my male colleagues on my side actually voted with the other side on it. Um, and I went home about as depressed as I ever had been, frankly, But by the time I was driving to the office the next day, we were inundated with calls and emails and people sharing their stories with me and thanking me for doing it. And and I thought it was worth doing. Um, I will say, you know, in the days following, I even had a few male colleagues from the other side of the aisle come up and share stories about someone in their family who had gone through what I had gone through. And they thanked me for my bravery. And I just... I, that was a hard thing to, to listen to because they voted against me and then shared that, you know, voted against my side that I had been making and then shared that they agreed with me. And, and that, was, that was hard to take. I don't know how old your uh, two girls were then, but did they hear that story after you told it? Did they, did they know about it? They were, they were pretty little. I, it, you know, they were probably seven and eight. Um, oh, so I see. So too young to really understand it. Too young to really understand, but, you know. But you apparently had to call your father and tell him the story because you had never shared it with him. Right. I mean, I'd never talked to my dad about that. And so on the way home from that debate, I called him to tell him. And, yeah, I, I know he didn't. I, he, he didn't have the words because I think he was so stunned and sad. And, um, but... I didn't want him to hear it from the news. I wanted him to hear it from me. As we speak uh, in Texas and a couple of other states, I think Ohio may be another, uh, the the state has asked to suspend abortion services as part of this COVID-19 protocol. Uh, This is probably going to go to the Supreme Court. 
what, what, what is your reaction to that? You're a governor. You have to make these decisions as well. There are other procedures that have been suspended. Uh, you know, we, we stopped elective surgeries here in Michigan. And some people have tried to say that that type of a um, procedure is considered the same. And that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, a woman's health care, her whole future, her d- ability to decide if and when she starts a family is is um, not an election. It is a fundamental to her life. Uh, it is life-sustaining, and it's something that um, government should not be getting in the, in the middle of. Do you think this is a backdoor way of containing these states? There have been strong anti-abortion movements. Mm-hmm. Is this a backdoor way of promoting that, or is it a legitimate public policy decision? Um, my gut is it's the former. I, you know, I'm not I'm not in Texas. I don't know all the the individuals involved, but um, I do think that there is a very um, concerted effort to use every opportunity to take away women's ability to make our own health care decisions. Now a word from our sponsors. Then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Fund. You became, uh, briefly, when you, you were term-limited out of the legislature, where, by the way, you were the Democratic leader in the legislature, you were term-limited out, and you became briefly a, a county prosecutor in your home county there around Lansing. One of the issues that came up was the molestation of gymnasts by Dr. Nasser at Michigan State, and opponents criticized you later because they said you hadn't taken aggressive enough action against him. Given your history, that must have not landed well with you. <laughs> well, let, let me start with telling you how I got, how I became prosecutor was, um, I was teaching at the University of Michigan and at Michigan State University. Um, and it, my prosecutor got arrested for his involvement in um, uh, human trafficking. And so he resigned in shame with this, in this sex scandal, and the judges in my county unanimously asked me to come in and clean up the prosecutor's office. And so while I was there, the Nasser case started to become publicly known. And there were decisions that predated my time in the prosecutor's office that um, some were trying to play politics with and, and uh, hold me accountable for. Uh, we worked incredibly hard um, to get... Uh, warrants produced that actually are what sent him away. And so the, yeah, it was, um, it was terribly uh, maddening for anyone to try to use that, use the pain of these sexual assault victims against me as a political tool. And, and it fell flat, obviously. Let me ask you, though, about these big time sports programs and the looking the other way. Is, is that something that needs to be looked more closely at? Because these are, as you know, you're the governor of the state. You're a graduate of Michigan State. These big sports programs are huge revenue producers for universities and magnets for universities. So there's a reluctance to kind of uh, upset the apple cart. Yeah, there is. But that being said, these are supposed to be institutions of higher learning that also have sports teams not sporting institutions that also teach some classes. And I think that it's really important that um, they, you know, we hold them to high standards, that 
you know, these are phenomenal institutions that have been built up over years. But the fact that they get so much revenue out of sports has really, I think, um, turned upside down the, the value system and how decisions are made. And so I do think that there needs to be better accountability, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on our campuses. It's not unique to one state or another. This is a pervasive American issue at our big institutions that um, have this, these competitive sports teams. And I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to um, reset the priorities. Have you had these conversations with your academic leaders and your trustees? I have. Uh, I wasn't real popular in town, but I, 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 you know, when this first started hitting, I was one of the um, first voices to say, you know, this leadership has got to go. Uh, the the president, who is now still facing charges, I called for the resignation long before anyone else because I know that it, the buck has to stop at the top. And the fact that was that this man was empowered to just abuse and hurt and inflict lifelong wounds on little girls and young women who came for him because he was supposed to be the best and it was propped up by a university. You ran for governor. That's why you left the prosecutor's office uh, after six months. You weren't the odds-on favorite to start and there was all kinds. You weren't well known, particularly in the state outside of government circles. When you announced, uh, I was interested, you, you started every speech by saying, my name is Gretchen Whitmer, I'm a woman, I'm a lawyer, I'm a lifelong Michigander. How did being a woman play? Michigan had already had a, a woman as governor, Jennifer Granholm, but there was in 2018, which is when you got elected, just this real outpouring after the election of 2016, and women candidates all over the country emerged. We saw it in the House, we saw women governors get elected. What is it that people were reacting to, responding to? You know, one of the funniest questions that I got during the wild campaign was, are you going to run as a woman? <laughs> and, you know, I just remember thinking, how do I... Did they give you the options? Right. How do I respond to this? You know, I mean, and, and of course, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know you seek the question behind the question. So what the question behind it really was, are you only going to be talking about women's health, right? being pro-choice, that kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I'd share that often just to get a laugh, but to also say, listen, women in Michigan care about the same thing men in Michigan care about. It's about having a good job, making sure that when you turn on the tap water, it's clean and you can hand your child a glass at the dinner table. They want to know that, you know, you can drive on the roads without busting, your, busting an axle um, or having to replace a windshield. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there was a lot of um, enthusiasm, especially with the Women's March and in reaction to uh, the, the Trump-Clinton election, where um, we know that Hillary Clinton won, but um, this, this person was taking over the, the reins who didn't have a good record in terms of, of women and supporting women. In fairness, we should note she didn't win in Michigan. That's one of the reasons he's there. I don't disagree with that, but when you look at the total count, <laughs> but the point being, you know, um, there were a lot of women who stepped forward to run in, in 2018. We won all the statewide elective offices um, in terms of the executive branch. I, you know, picked my running mate, so we do have a man named Garland Gilchrist, who is the lieutenant governor, first African-American man um, in that position in, in the history of Michigan, but also uh, Attorney General Dana Nessel, first openly 
only gay woman, um, and she's our AG, and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We, won, we swept all the top offices, and I think it's because people were um, engaged and enthusiastic in a way that um, we weren't in 2016, and I'm hopeful that, that we will respond again in 2020. You uh, ran on the, uh, the your, your tagline was fix the damn roads, uh, which I thought was fantastic just <laughs> as a former practitioner and also as someone who has a house in Western Michigan. So I couldn't be more enthusiastic about that project. But the legislature was less enthusiastic about that project. You proposed a 45 cent gas tax increase. That did not go. I think you talked about a bonding plan. That did not go. This is the principal promise that you ran on. How frustrated are you about not being able to move forward? And how much are you worried about being held accountable if it doesn't move forward? Well, you know, I've got this overwhelmingly Republican legislature, and I knew the odds of me getting a 45 cent gas tax were were not very high. But I also know people expected me to lead with what I said I was going to do. They're tired of people that tell them you can have everything and pay for nothing because they know that it's not true. Um, we've got some of the worst roads in the nation. And so the, what I put on the table was a real solution. Now, what I would have liked to have seen is the legislature come back with an alternative. But instead of doing that, they, they said, let's sell some bridges. Or they've even said, let's take money out of teacher pensions to pay for the roads. There's no way on earth I'm ever going to agree to that. And so I, year two this year, I led with a bond. We're going to move forward with that. They can't stop me. And so I am going to fix the damn roads one way or another. But the fact of the matter is, I'd love to be devoting all my time on that issue because that was something that I know people want us to get done. And yet, here we are in the middle of this global pandemic, and um, you know how how much we're able to do on that front. You know, we'll have to turn all our energy to that once we are on the other side of this pandemic. But uh, ironically, though, the president and, and the speaker are talking about a an infrastructure, a massive infrastructure program to help. Uh, get the economy going again. Might that help you achieve your goal there? Yeah, absolutely. And I've already got the plan written for how we how we best put those funds to uh, practice. So if if that happens, I would be very pleased to be able to get to work on fixing the damn roads. Finally, I, I want to ask you, you, you mentioned that you got to pick your running mate. Uh, Vice President Biden now has to pick a running mate. What would you be thinking about if you were him? Well, I mean, I, I, nothing that it would be surprise you. You're, you know better than anybody what he should be looking for in a running mate. I mean, I think that he has to be comfortable that he's got someone who, whose judgment he can trust, who is going to, you know, be um, the extension of of him, who can add to the ticket in terms of whether it's a, a viewpoint or a geography or an experience. Um, but I think he's got to have someone that he trusts and that the world can look at as a legitimate support. I would love to see him have, I was pleased to see, you know, when he said he's going to have a woman as his running mate. I think that there are a lot of phenomenal female leaders across this country that um, would be uh, great on his ticket. And, you know, the fact that anyone even mentions me among the, the names that I initially think of is, is an honor, but there's no question that he's got um, lots of potential partners out there that would be fantastic. You, you mentioned in passing you're, the fact that you're mentioned. You're more than mentioned. You're considered high up on the list of possibilities because you're a governor, because you're in a, in, in, in a geographically important region strategically and so on. Do you feel like you're ready for that responsibility? 
You know, I never uh, thought that I would be the governor of Michigan. I never thought that I would want to run for any office, frankly. But here's what I've learned about myself. I, when I see something that needs to get done, I roll up my sleeves and jump in and help. Whether I'm on that ticket or not, I'm going to help him and whomever his running mate is because I think that it's so important that, that we make this monumental um, decision in November. This is not about me. This is about my daughters. This is about our future as, an, as a country. This is about our experience in this moment and knowing that we need leaders who can chart a course for a real opportunity for every American that will restore our standing in the world, that will give us reason to feel optimistic and hopeful and proud. Um, and I think, you know, that that's, that's really what's at stake in this next election. Right. But if, you're a, if asked, you would serve. <laughs> David, I'm so glad we had this time together. <laughs> hey, before you go, I just have to say a word of thanks because I have a five-year-old granddaughter, and she was in western Michigan a few weeks ago and lost her first tooth. Oh. And was so gratified that the tooth fairy was exempted by you and was able to do her work. <laughs> and, uh, and so thank you for that. And I, I wish you all the best. This is an enormous burden. And uh, governors have been on the front line. You've been on the front line. And I wish all the best to you and uh, the people of Michigan. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.